1: Is hair a material? Our biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a
0: material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material?
1: What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, material scientist Anna Pajaiski, and this episode I talked to the brilliant archaeological conservator Angela Middleton about leather. I started by asking Angela how she first got into conservation.
2: It's not actually a roundabout journey. It was actually quite straightforward, if you think about it. When I was little, I had, uh, I suppose like everyone, a couple of different jobs in my head. Uh, and when I was very young, I always wanted to be a dentist. And um, so I suppose there's sort of an underlying um, compulsion always, almost with me where I uh, always felt like that I like to fix things and, and mend things Um And uh, when I was doing my A-levels, I started thinking, gosh, what, what do I actually do after I leave school? Where do I go from here? and uh, I just got a careers advice book and started uh, looking through the different jobs and professions and I was quite interested in becoming a carpenter or furniture maker and from that I found out about uh, furniture conservation restoration and uh, and then started reading around the profession of conservation restoration and then came across an archaeological conservator and I thought well that sounds really interesting I've never heard of one of those uh, let's just see what this is all about and uh, yeah and I've done this ever since Um, I've done my uh, training in Berlin in Germany and before I could go um, to university I had to do two years uh, work placement in a lab in a museum Uh, and then I did a couple of years uh, training in Berlin um, and then before I actually finished my degree I started working in Newport in South Wales cleaning and recording medieval ship timbers, which was uh, a lot of fun. And uh, then, whilst I was working, finished off my degree, and then had a short stint of when I worked in London at the Michael Faraday Museum of the Royal Institution. So I moved away from archaeology at this point and and worked on scientific instruments, which was really fascinating, actually, because I got to to work on some of these iconic uh, instruments and, and props that they used to make uh, great discoveries, you know, the uh, voltaic pile when electricity gets discovered or the magnetic induction ring from Faraday. So that was quite, quite amazing and a privileged uh, job to have. Uh, And then uh, I moved back into archaeology and got a job with uh, what was at the time English Heritage. um, And I started working as an archaeological conservator then. So and that's still what I'm doing today. So what does the job of
1: an archaeological conservator actually entail? Um
2: so I suppose we are sort of like uh, the paramedics and the doctors for the uh, artifacts that get recovered from archaeological sites. And that can be uh, terrestrial, or land sites, but also underwater sites where we work with um, diving archaeologists and some of the tasks that we might do. Is uh, advice hopefully before the archaeologists go out excavating, um, and then we might do a site visit and. sort of look at the artifacts in the ground, maybe give advice on how best to lift them, what materials to use when you lift them, then uh, we will advise on, on the best uh, storage solutions whilst uh, uh, artifacts are out on site. And then when things come back into the lab, uh, this is sort of where the examination and the analysis properly start. So quite often we start off with uh, x-raying, especially when you have a lot of metal artifacts. So we just like to, to see what we got and create a record of everything um and then we uh, dis- uh, we sort of check how well preserved or not so well preserved artifacts are and we devise um conservation treatments for for the different materials and in archaeology we come across pretty much sort of all materials that people used in the past and um, you know, that's everything from sort of the natural resources, what we more call the organic artefacts, so the wood, the leather, the rope, the textile, or inorganic artefacts, metal, ceramics, glass. Um, we, As we move on in archaeology, I suppose we will increasingly have to deal with uh, plastics or early plastics, rubber, those sort of materials, and so far I haven't had to deal with those, and I'm I'm quite grateful for that, I have to say. Um Yeah, so um, here for my job with Historic England specifically, um, I'm also uh, giving advice to the sector or providing training to the sector. Um, But uh, project work normally features around uh, sort of uh, archaeological excavations. And at the moment, all my project work is uh, 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 on material from underwater sites only. So I'm working on shipwreck material at the moment, which is fascinating and complex and challenging but exciting. That does sound really
1: exciting and really cool to work with all sorts of different materials as well. Um, Yes. On this podcast we often like to just focus on one material specifically um, and for this conversation we've decided to focus on leather Um, and you mentioned that the work that you're doing is all on underwater kind of uh materials that have come from underwater archaeological sites um so how would leather that you find in that situation differ from you know the leather that is on my shoes at home at the moment <laughs>
2: um so leather specific, specifically leather on an archaeological site will normally only survive when it's wet. Uh, So underwater sites are obviously really good for the preservation of leather, um, but you can also have it in isolated uh, situations on land sites. So for example, if you have a well or really deep lying uh, deposits uh, where water has accumulated, that might also lead to the preservation of of leather. And uh, wet leather can be very well preserved but in comparison to the leather that we know from our clothing or bags it is obviously very very soft um it is sort of um squidgy uh, almost almost a bit slimy sometimes um <laughs> um but yeah it's uh, it's still there and uh, if, if, if enough of it is preserved, you can quite easily see um, what it used to be. So, um, you know, a shoe is quite easily recognizable, but uh, also other things like uh, little pictures and fittings um, sometimes help you to identify them or you see the stitch holes on them. So there's a lot of detailed information that you can get out out of your leather. But, yeah, obviously the main difference is that in our region here, Northern Europe, um, archaeological leather is normally wet and um and sometimes quite smelly actually (laughs) you've painted a really lovely picture of this stuff so
1: so when this kind of slimy smelly leather (laughs) like arrives on your laboratory bench what are the type of treatments that you have to do to it in order to conserve it
2: um so again as with all artifacts we'll start with a good look and a, a prod and assessment um and uh, we we will have to clean it quite often, and uh, because the leather is so soft, um, we we use either just our hands or uh, brushes or sponges are quite good um, to just get get rid of the uh, adhering mud and sediment and all that. Um, And depending on the size of your leather or how fragile it is, you might do that on a frame and you use a lot of water whilst you're doing that all the time being really careful that you don't actually wash any evidence away. So if there are stitch holes, we would look at those closely uh, to see if there's any thread remains in there because we can then look at the fibers that make the thread and sort of build a bigger picture of of the uh, artifact that we have Um, So yeah, so the first stages is always uh, sort of recording, looking, cleaning, um, but uh, we we can't keep it in the wet state. So that's um, really impractical um, for, you know, other people to get access to, but it's also really impractical uh, long term for sort of museum storage. um, And uh, despite the fact that uh, decay will just continue in the wet state or it's much harder to to control decay when the artifacts are still wet so we'll we'll have to to dry it somehow but um you you have to do that in a really controlled way so if you would just let your uh, wet orc- archaeological leather dry out it would uh shrink and shrivel and uh split and crack and or sometimes just crumble away so when that happens um the sort of what we call the archaeological value of your artifact is um, well either diminished or totally lost. So we, we try to prevent that and we do that by uh, impregnating it with uh, different substances. And the two uh, favorite materials uh, for conservators are either glycerol or polyethylene glycol. And, um, and uh, they, they do the same thing more or less. And it's, it's, Almost a personal um, preference whether <laughs> one conservator likes this and the other one likes that, and and I'm in the polyethylene glycol um, fraction or, or PEG as we call it, and um, and we uh, we have different grades of PEG, uh, so uh, the we start off with like or the ones that we use in conservation uh, sort of go from PEG 200 up to PEG. 6,000 and the number just gives you uh, an indication of the um, chain lengths of the uh, molecule and the shorter the, or the, the, the smaller, the number, the shorter the chain and it's uh, liquid at room temperature. And then the higher, the number, the longer the chain, and it's then more paste like, or even uh, a solid at room temperature. And it, this is a sort of uh, a colorless and odor, PEG is a colorless odorless uh, substance that we can dissolve in water. And uh, for leather, I normally use PEG 400. So that's liquid at room temperature. And I dissolve that down into a solution between 20 and 30% roughly. And then uh, you immerse your leather into that solution. And then by uh, osmosis, some of the water that was in the leather comes out and some of the peg and the water mix migrates into the leather and it fulfills the function of a bulking agent so leather is made up of fibers um, and the bulking agent as it uh, penetrates into the leather sort of uh, goes in between all the fibers and uh, fills out uh, the spaces that is normally filled out by the water and uh, so the leather sits in there for a, a week or maybe two weeks, depending on the size of it. So leather is a, is a large sheet material, obviously. So it has a very large surface area. So impregnation works quite quickly as compared to uh, wood, for example, which uh, can have a very large cross section and therefore impregnation is really, really slow. Um, so leather needs... Uh, much less time in terms of impregnation. But then we still uh, have the problem of having to dry it. So at this stage, everything is still wet and we have this mixture of leather, water and and peg in our solution. And uh, we could, uh, under some circumstances, sometimes air drying uh, can work. But uh, we like to use a method called uh, vacuum freeze drying. And uh, this will eliminate all drying stresses. So uh, water has a really high surface tension. And with that high surface tension, water likes to hold on to all sorts of uh, surfaces and substances. And when the water evaporates, um, this high surface tension uh, means that it can cause um, damage when when the water evaporates. And in the case of leather, it would call it would cause um, sort of uh, splits and. Uh, ripping of the leather it would literally rip the leather fibers apart from one another and so to avoid that we use the vacuum freeze drying process where we uh, freeze our impregnated leather first and when we freeze we shock freeze so we go down from ambient room temperature straight down to minus 30 which will only form very small crystals uh, because if you slow if you slowly freeze, then the um, ice crystals have time to grow, and um, and that again can cause uh, damage in in your substrate. Um, so we shock freeze really quickly down to minus thirty, and uh, and then we put our leather into the vacuum freeze dryer. And uh, the principle that we are exploiting here is sublimation, where the, the water that's in your leather goes from uh, solid, from ice, to, to gas vapor straight away. So we never have any liquid in our leather. And uh, when I'm doing that, um, I'm interrupting the process quite a bit. And I do that to check on the leather. And um, I do uh, sort of touch it and feel it quite a bit. And I'll uh, sort of cup it between my hands and uh, test it for whether it feels um, frozen damp or or just frozen cold, but not damp anymore. And at the same time, I'm weighing it because as the water uh, sublimates out of the leather, it uh, will lose weight. And I use the uh, in- decrease in weight as an indication of um, how far the drying has progressed. And when the weight loss plateaus off, will consider the artifact dried. And at the same time, I'm always sort of uh, checking and, and um, touching and feeling it quite a lot. <laughs> um, so leather is a quite a haptic material anyway. And I suppose when I get to that stage, I, I use uh, that haptic sense uh, a lot to sort of just check every everything is fine. Because quite often um, you never have a uniform preservation across the whole piece of leather. So you could have uh, an area that is really well preserved and then quite often on the edges, um, it gets much thinner or it frays out a bit. And and um, But the drying process can't differentiate between the two um, states of preservation that I have in one artifact. So I have to really make sure I'm finding a good um, sort of middle ground for everything to, to dry equally. But also to prevent over-drying on these uh, fragile, um, friable edges, and if that happens, the leather would sort of curl up and get quite, um, really quite, quite dry and almost uh, crispy <laughs> in those areas. And then they're very prone to uh, to physical damage. Then, but yeah, that that's basically the, the the wet leather conservation process in a nutshell. It sounds like
1: it's kind of rife with all sorts of different challenges. You know. Um, trying to decide when it's dried properly, all of these different areas behaving slightly differently and having to kind of look after the different spots um, really carefully to kind of try and conserve as much of the item as possible. Um, Yeah. Have you got any, maybe like one or two sort of favourite stories or anecdotes of objects that you've been able to conserve over the years? Um, I suppose specifically of leather. Um, It'd be great Mm. to hear a couple of stories
2: um so one project i worked on with with a colleague of mine serena uh, was on two leather hats and um the way we've come about those is we we looked at uh, it they are they are apparently from a shipwreck called the sterling castle and we looked at uh, quite a lot of these artifacts from the Stirling Castle and uh, assessed their condition in terms of uh, stability or whether any any further work needed doing on them. And the leather hats were initially selected uh, because they showed... um, White bloom on them, uh, and and uh, we we initially thought that they had um, an outbreak of mold on them, but it's more likely that they had a formation of what we call spew on them, which is when uh, you put sort of uh, greasy, oily materials on the leather for um, almost for maintenance or sort of leather care um, when they go off. Um, They, they form this sort of white spew and that looks like little white spots. And sometimes, um, you know, they give off like a rancid smell, just sort of oils and fats going off basically. So, uh, when I went to the museum to pick all these artifacts that we had selected to work on app, um, I said to the curator so I also wanted to take the the leather hat right and and he turned around and pointed to the shop of uh, to the top of the showcase saying oh yeah yeah it's there and I looked at the hat and I I went like you you're kidding me I thought that's the hat you were wearing when you came to work this morning. <laughs> <laughs> and you just placed it on top of the showcase and he said no no that's that's the hat from the sterling castle. So I became a bit suspicious. Anyway, I, I took these uh, this hat away and there was another similar hat or very similar actually in terms of construction in a, in a different museum, but from the same site. So this is almost uh, always um, a little bit of alarm bells go off when you have two really well-preserved artifacts that are of almost identical construction and that just look a little bit too good to be true. So archaeological leather, uh, wet leather f- from... Yeah, archaeological sites uh normally looks very uh, dark almost black um and these hats uh were sort of the normal tan leather color that we are used to from our you know satchel bags and that sort of thing so i had this lovely sort of deep brown tan color and uh and we started thinking about how, um, you know, how come they are in such a good condition and they look so very different to all the other leather. And the the obvious uh, thing for us to do would be to date them. Uh, and normally we, uh, for organic materials, we, we go down the route of C14 dating where we look at the carbon and all that. And I discussed that with my colleagues uh, in the dating team. And the problem we had with these hats is that we didn't know... Um, what materials were put on them, but I could definitely tell there were some really greasy materials on on them. And obviously these um, materials would contain carbon as well. So if we would uh, date the hat with these other carbon-containing materials, um, that is a source of contamination. And um, we would probably end up dating uh, this greasy material or that fatty material that was put on them for, for care and maintenance rather than the actual leather. So C-14 dating uh, was, was out of the question. So my colleague Serena and I went on this quest of uh, how we could possibly prove that, you know, the, the, these hats were or were not from the Stirling Castle wreck, um, which by the way sank in 1703. So we go back a a little bit in time and uh, Serena's done a, great amount of work on uh, looking at um, paintings um, and depictions of people wearing hats at the time. Uh, Just so for sort of comparative uh, um, examples. Uh, At the same time, we contacted loads of other museums where we knew they had hats or headgear and always looking sort of at a maritime context. Um, And no one had any of those hats in their collection. And and it sort of maintained this mystery, um, and then I did some uh, analysis uh, where you look at the uh, shrinkage temperature of your leather, and and I thought, well, if um, if the other leathers have a certain shrinkage temperature and fall into one group, and the the leather from the hats has a different shrinkage temperature, uh, falls into a different group, that will prove. Um, that they are not from the same site, mm. and so that was the sort of thinking behind it. But um, as I'm sure you understand or, or can relate to, you want to figure something out, and you come up with a grand plan, and uh, the reality is always totally different. It never, <laughs> never is that easy, and never works, works out that uh, that straightforwardly. Um, so I used a method called DSC which stands for differential scanning calorimetry which basically measures the amount of energy that you put into your sample before it breaks down. So in this case we uh, put heat in and the breaking down was measured by the uh, the leather um, sort of breaking down um, the collagen bonds basically breaking up. Um and you you end up with like a heat curve, and and there's this uh, specific temperature when uh, the the leather fibers um, when the heat is added they sort of start moving and contracting, and uh, all of a sudden they contract really fast because of all the heat, and and then all movement all shrinkage of the temp, uh, of the leather fiber stops, and that's your shrinkage temperature, and uh, now. The, the, the values were all over the place <laughs> and, and there was no clear grouping or correlation. And uh, the reason for that is possibly because leather from an archaeological context has a high degree of mineralization. So there's all sorts of minerals in the soil, which, whilst the leather is buried, sort of migrate into the leather and therefore uh, affect the shrinkage temperature, basically. Uh, and uh, again, we didn't know what was put on the on the hats. So, and those materials will also have had an, an influence on the shrinkage temperature. But what I didn't know with um, with the um, uh, differential scanning calorimetry method, you also get a reading in terms of the energy that you actually put in, which is expressed in joule. And and that method actually made uh, the the other leather from the Stirling Castle and the leather from the hats fall into two different categories, meaning that um, a much higher energy was needed to break the collagen in the hats than in the other archaeological leather, which was very much in keeping with the rest of the collection and very much like we would imagine archaeological leather to look like. Uh, So that was one piece of evidence and then together with Serena's art historical research and us contacting other um, collections to see if they had similar hats, uh, we've not come up with a steadfast answer but I think we are prepared to go as far as to say that the hats are not in keeping with the rest of the collection. (laughs) So so, um, and yeah that was a really interesting project for us to work on because the normal methods that we would use uh, were not applicable in this case. And we had to really think outside the box. Um, and as an archaeological conservator, it wasn't probably even archaeology we, we investigated there. But, you know, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> this this happens. And you sort of grapple around and look what other methods you can use to sort of come up with an answer. Yeah, yeah. So. so, if I could press
1: you then for an explanation, is this some kind of foul play? Is this a practical joke um, from someone, or did someone just oh. drop, <laughs> happen to drop their hat in the middle of an archaeological site?
2: Yeah, you see, I'm not even sure they were ever exposed to the sea.
1: If oh, they really? were,
2: it would have been for yeah, it would have been for a very short time. So, this collection in particular, which will not be named. Uh, had a very, uh, sort of turbulent history, which is, which is not unusual given you know, sometimes, uh, the, how collections come to be and, um, spending cuts and, uh, you know, funding shortcomings and all the rest of it. Um, and then also in relation to that, the, uh, Sterling Castle wreck was excavated in the 1980s by mainly sports divers. So, since then, uh, archaeology and especially underwater archaeology has come up and has come on in leaps and bounces, and sort of record keeping um, has improved. Mm. Uh, and and that would not have always been the case uh, back in the you know 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, so the 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 provenance of these hats is is has not been well recorded I suppose that's what I'm trying to say yeah. and um, there is no real sort of record of, of them having been um, uh, sort of um, taken on into the collection and and with possibly changing staffing levels, uh, patchy records, it might have just sort of accidentally shifted into the collection of the Stirling Castle. It's, I I don't think we'll ever find out really because it's, it's all very speculative. This Um, And yeah, if you speak to the people that worked on the, on the wreck back in the eighties, they're absolutely convinced that the hats came from the wreck, but, they are so not in keeping with the rest of the of the leather and mm. they just look very, very modern. But yeah. <laughs> a mystery. How exciting. Yes. An archaeological
1: <laughs> mystery. <laughs> yeah.
0: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones. Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight.
1: Why go to all of this bother to try and conserve leather objects? You know, what what information are we looking for from
2: these objects? um, Well, I'm I'm a bit biased, obviously, but obviously, leather can tell you so much. Um, It's some people call leather tanning uh, the first manufacturing manufacturing process uh, of people. So uh, before people started using the loom, for example, leather was one of the first materials that would provide a really large sheet material, which could have been used for all sorts of things, um, you know, shelter, clothing, straps, attachments, uh, ornaments. Um, so a really, really versatile material. And and people in the past would have used the natural resources available to them uh, on a daily basis, but if you look in our museum collections, because um, certain materials don't preserve very well in, in the soil or underwater, there there is uh, I think quite an imbalance in how we picture or envisage our past, and uh, especially if you go really quite far back, so to Neolithic times. Um, the only sort of materials that we have left are mainly stone tools. And, you know, sometimes we're lucky we have a bit of wood and, and that sort of thing, but where's all the rest, you know? So, and these materials, they, they haven't survived either because, you know, tanning wasn't, um, hadn't been discovered at the time and, and uh, skin, skins and hides were processed in a different way. But it, I think all these uh, sort of organic materials, which are, only surviving in special circumstances, they give us a much richer picture of our past because they really sort of address this collection imbalance that we quite often see where our museum collections are full of uh, metals or ceramics or stone and glass. So these sort of materials that preserve uh, much better um, compared to, to the leather and the wood and the textiles. So so that's one aspect. I think it just paints a much more accurate picture of how people interacted with with naturally available resources. And then, if you if you think about leather specifically, uh, it can obviously tell you uh, what um, you know what animals were about. Um, we can tell that from the animal bone record as well. But that's another sort of data set that's available to us. It can tell us about uh, trade and exchange, if we should ever be so lucky to find leather from animals that are not native to the area you're working in. Um, and then it, it just tells you something about the skills and the technology people had available. So when you look at uh, sewing techniques or you know how, how, how it was actually processed at manufacturers, then you start thinking about, well, What needles did they use? You know, so there's a lot of uh, off spins where you can then sort of go down your little wormholes and get (laughs) get lost in in quite a lot of um, detail as to all the different materials and different sort of skills that need to come in to sometimes just make one item. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, well...
1: Could it tell us about the the kind of societies and the cultures from that place, I suppose, in terms of, you know, the, the quality of the materials or how they were used, the size of people's feet?
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, <laughs> yes, especially shoes are, are really uh, emotive, aren't they? Because we sort of feel quite a connection to... Um, Possibly the person that used them, and and yes, you you can see um, when you when you just look at leather shoes from the past, for example, you can see imprints of the foot, wow. uh, but you can also um, draw conclusions about other foot complaints, so bunions, for example, where a piece of leather has been cut out to uh, you know accommodate uh, an, an outgrowth on your foot, that mm. sort of thing. Um, I'm not so sure about the society or the quality um, because. That is really um, difficult to draw those conclusions because we, we always have to deal with preservation, and um, and I think we have to look at the the wider context or or other surrounding um, artifacts in in that respect. Um,
1: what's I suppose I want to I'm interested in knowing what's next for you. You know, are there any kind of um f- sort of final frontiers in leather conservation
2: that you would love to crack um i i think with conservation i think we're pretty happy i hope other conservators agree with me yeah. on that there um but i think leather conservation for me i think is sort of i feel quite comfortable with the method that we have now the the sort of peg impregnation followed by vacuum free drying i think I think that produces really good uh, and consistently good results, at least in my experience. Um, But I think uh, there are other areas uh, where more work can be done and and some people already are doing more work. That is, um, for example, uh, animal identification. So uh, by looking at the uh, grain pattern of the leather, so that's the uh, outside of the skin, the, the, the side of the skin um, where the hair was attached or the fur was attached at one point. And if you uh, look at the follicle pattern that the hair left behind, that is uh, specific per animal. So you could... Um, uh, then tell the difference between a uh, cattle, sheep, or goat, or you know, maybe more unusual uh, leathers uh, that you might come across. Um, but that technique, A, relies on uh, the follicle pattern actually uh, still being there so that you can actually see it. On really heavily worn leathers, that's normally uh, gone. It just sort of wraps off and um, also, you, you need quite a lot of experience, uh, or you need to do it a lot to actually build the skills to to uh, identify uh, the animal from the from the grain pattern. Um, another technique that has been increasingly used now is uh, zooms, which is zooarchaeology by mass spectrometry, or it's also called mass uh, peptide fingerprinting, where you look at um, the protein. In the collagen basically Uh, and it's also used on on bone or it's really important in sort of ethnographic collections where you have a lot of uh, skin materials or um, you know uh, sort of um, sinew materials for binding uh, things together and um, there's not a lot of um, diagnostic information in those sort of materials that can tell you what what they were really made from, and and zooms is a great technique um, where where you could use that to to actually find out what animal uh, products were used to to make certain things, and uh, yeah, people start using this uh, more and more for for leather, or it becomes more accessible for leather, and um, great results have already been achieved by by looking at uh, medieval manuscripts, so so the parchment and and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think that's that's really exciting. So that would be nice to do some work in there. Yeah, for
1: sure. An amazing use of, I suppose, like kind of forensic science almost on, yes. on this stuff. Yeah. Um, so if people have enjoyed hearing about the leather conservation and the types of leather objects that we've been talking about today, um, are there any maybe online places or maybe one day physical places um, that <laughs> you recommend that people
2: can go to find out more? Um Oh, first of all, I have to give a shout out to the Archaeological Leather Group. Uh, they are a great bunch of people. So if you just uh, sort of uh, use a search engine of your choice, uh, look for Archaeological Leather Group. You you come up uh, with their webpage quite quickly. And there's a great bibliography on there about all, all, all things leather. <laughs> and uh, we, we do meet uh, normally uh, at least once, normally twice a year. And we go and see... Uh, Places of interest where we can look and sometimes even touch some leather, which is uh, great. This is where we all get very excited. Where we go like, "Oh, can we turn it over? Oh, can we put it under the microscope?" <laughs> and um, obviously, this all had to stop at the moment, but we are hoping to to pick that up again. So, um, but then uh, obviously in Northampton you have uh, the Museum of uh, Leathercraft, uh, and you know there there are other little. Places here and there uh, about where where you can look for leather. Most collections will have some sort of leather in 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 their museums. But yes, do give the archaeological leather group some sort of consideration <laughs> if you're interested in the subject. There is also the Institute of Creative Leather Technology, and they're also based in Southampton. This is where you can learn about. Um, Tanning methods and and where you can sort of train to become a tanner, um, yeah, maybe we stick that in the section with uh, where people can go to find out more. Yep. I once went there and did a week's course on leather tanning. It was amazing. I came away with a um, tanned goat skin in in a week. <laughs> wow, that sounds amazing. <laughs> Fantastic. And if people are interested
1: in in you and what you do, if you got any kind of links online where you share what you're up to,
2: uh, so. Quite a lot of our works, uh, or well, a bit of our work gets gets sort of put on to the Historic England uh, webpage, where you need to sort of go down the uh, research and then latest news or something like that section. But uh, if people wanted to follow me, I'm on Twitter under at Angie Middleton where I do not just talk about leather, although I do love my leather, but also other sort of uh, heritage uh or conservation-related subjects. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for
1: coming on the podcast. It's been so interesting to speak to you about leather. Um, and yeah, it, it's a it's a material that is never really covered in traditional material science kind of courses. So I didn't it's really not. know anything about it. Yeah. Um, Oh, I'm shocked. (laughs) Shocked and appalled.
2: (laughs) Yes, yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: You know, sometimes as a podcaster, you manage to get all of the gold during the interview itself. But there's the odd occasion that you manage to catch an extra little nugget after the formal part of the recording is over. That was the case with my chat with Angela. And here's just a small segment captured afterwards that was just too good not to include.
2: I've got a colleague here with me. Uh, well, she's sort of freelance and she only comes every now and then. And um, we call her the bunny boiler, she, which is a bit rude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But she she processes animal carcasses for our animal oh, bone okay. reference collection. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she has to skin the animals and sort of take then all the meat off and then just cook the, well, clean the bones, basically. Yeah. And then that all gets accessioned then into the reference collection. And Eva and I, we keep saying we need to... Have a nice skin one day, and just try some sort of uh, traditional tanning here yeah. when we are allowed to sort of do that again. And you know, there's a saying where people uh, say e- every animal has a brain big enough to t- tan its own skin. Yeah, and cause, uh, yeah, <laughs> you see, I've I've gone past that point. I'm just like, yeah, let me at it. <laughs> so go on
1: sorry i interrupted you there with my disgust that's
2: all right you basically just wrap the brain into the skin and and the oils and fats from the brain uh have a tanning effect uh, pretty much like egg yolk for example um it's it's not real tanning it's more like uh oh hang on i don't know um i don't think the egg yolk is real tanning but brains might be i um there is this sort of weird mix uh, or like weird techniques which I can never really tell apart but uh-huh. brains should be sort of real tanning oh. um yeah so um yeah one of these days we will do that it was a it was a tough call for me when when our rabbit died <laughs> <laughs> okay I, g- I gave my son the option I said to him look I said uh because and he's 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 not squeamish as such. Um, he's quite interested. Like when we go f- fishing, sometimes he's absolutely fine with sort of um, cutting the fish open and all that. And so I said to him, um, "Look, Benny's dead now, um, but would you w- would you maybe like to have the skull?" <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and I said to him, you you, you you, don't have to decide now. You can, you know, we can keep, because it was in the winter when he died. I said, we can keep him in the garage for like another two days, maybe. You know? <laughs> and I, I got really excited. I thought, yes, this is my chance to get hey, a, a really nice skin I can then work with. But also I can do some training and work with Eva and understand, you know, about skin processing and defleshing and all that. But in the end, he decided Benny was to remain whole and he was to be put in the ground. And that's fine as well. So Fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, sorry. <laughs> that might be a bit too too far, but um, <laughs> it's when you have the options, you may, may as well ask.
1: <laughs> yeah, and exactly. And if you've got all the equipment at work as well. yeah Yeah, funnily enough you're not the first person to come on this podcast and talk about um skinning of animals we did a whole episode on bone um with with my friend lucy eckersley who um quite often processes animal carcasses and extracts the bones and (laughs) (laughs) puts them together again
2: yeah i i just think it's it's um it really helps you to understand you know how people would have done it and and Mm. you yeah not just about the skeleton and all that but the whole yeah. Having said that, the scraping of the goat skin when we tanned them, that was mm. pretty, that was a bit rank, I have to say, because it, you know, by that time they had to sit a while already yeah. and they sort of, you you encourage um, decay a little bit in skins because then the hair comes away quite yeah. easily. It loosens everything up and, mm. and you can scrape the remains of the flesh off quite easily. So especially yeah. it was a very hot summer that oh, year, no. so that was... Yeah, it was it was a bit smelly. You get used to it after a while. And the people working there, they said they can't smell anything anymore, <laughs> which really makes you wonder, you know. Yeah, it does. Something to aim for, maybe. No, no, no. I do use my nose a lot in conservation. I have to say, I don't know. You spoke to quite a lot of conservators yes. whether others say that, but uh, sometimes people will say, "What is it?" And I quite often go, "Like, I don't know."
1: Just give it a sniff.
2: When things go mouldy, you know, I can pick that out quite quickly yeah. sort of like, to see what's going on there.
1: So that was the fantastic Angela Middleton. Thanks so much to her for taking the time to come and talk to me for the pod. As always, you can say hi to us on Twitter at Realtalk, that's R-I-A-L Talk, and follow us on Instagram at HandmadePod. As always, thanks to Dave Shepard for our marvellous cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. That's all for this episode um next week it's christmas and i'll be producing i think probably a special episode for then so until then thanks for listening and i'll speak to you next time on handmade
0: flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans